Let me encourage you at this time to turn with me to the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. It comes immediately on the hills of the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 5a of Micah chapter 5. And uh, you can just hold the place there. And then I'm going to read a couple of additional passages as well as we come to the ministry of God's word this evening. So from Micah chapter 5, hear the word of the true and living God, beginning with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. And then from the gospel according to Luke chapter 2. Just hear the word of God as I read the first seven verses. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, or a census is being taken. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time for her to give, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then from the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter, hear the word of God as I read just a few verses at the beginning of the chapter. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek the face of God for the ministry of the word. Let's pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We thank you for your tender mercies to your people. And we would remember before your throne tonight our brother Jim Johnson as he prepares to undergo this somewhat routine bit of surgery. But we do pray that you would be with him as he goes under the anesthesia and that you would bring him through safe and sound and that you would guide the hands of the surgeon as he does his work. And though, Lord, is we come now to this, your precious word, we pray that the Holy Spirit, as the surgeon of our souls, would do his work in our own hearts tonight to open up your word for all of us to see and to understand and grant us as well, we pray, the desire to obey it. For we ask these things in the matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We have seen in our evening studies concerning the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament several weeks ago now, the first prophecy in the Bible regarding the coming of Messiah, what I called the Genesis of the Gospel, which is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that very pivotal text where God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And surely any study of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament must begin with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 because ever since this first promise of the gospel called the Proto-Evangelium, all of these passages which prevision the coming of Christ look forward in the expectation that Christ in his person and work, would come into the world to bruise the head of Satan. And that is all in the context of what takes place in the Garden of Eden, when after our first parents broke the law of God and plunged the entire human race into this state of sin and misery, God was pleased to punctuate that dark event with the light of his promise to recover and restore in Christ a great multitude of men and women and boys and girls whom no man could number out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. And so the whole history of redemptive prophecy commences, indeed begins, with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden when God is pleased to promise the coming of a deliverer, a savior. And thus prophetically, from that time forth, 
with ever increasing clarity, the shadow of Calvary is cast over the coming of God's Messiah, who in the language of Isaiah 63 would be traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And the Old Testament saints ever since received this word of God, believed it, and began to look for and anticipate God's Messiah at some future date. And this is surely one of the reasons for which the Jewish people are so particular with all of those long genealogies. Because they had in view the coming of the promised one, the Lord's Messiah. Now whereas the Old Testament saints look forward, the New Testament saints look back having placed their faith in the Messiah who has come and who is coming yet again in glory and judgment at the consummation of the ages. And this is the same Christ, whether he is the Christ of prophecy or the Christ of history, he is one and the same Christ. The Old Testament saints were not saved in some different way from you and I. They were saved looking forward, whereas you and I are saved looking back, for it is faith in the same Christ. The Messiah's redeeming work transcends time, for we know that he is the lamb, lamb slain from the very foundation of the world. And yet, he had to step into time and into human history in order to accomplish his redemptive work on behalf of his people. And without the literal coming of the Son of God and being made flesh, our redemption would never have been fulfilled. Now, what we call the incarnation is not a word, per se, that is found in the Bible. And thus, some folk have struggled with this word. But what it really means is the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. It means the enfleshment of deity. The Apostle John wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the mystery to which Paul testified in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he spoke, wrote that God has been manifested in the flesh. So the entire history of the world before the incarnation proceeds to the event when the, the Messiah became flesh. And then likewise, we can say that since his ascension, that is, since his return back to the right hand of the Father, every day takes us one day closer to that momentous event when Jesus Christ is coming again in great glory and power. Therefore, the church in all ages has looked to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, as we've seen throughout this series in the evening, consist of wonderful details, indeed glorious bits and pieces 
of the Messiah himself. But what makes this portion of Micah 5 unique is that it references explicitly the place, the location of where Christ is to be born. Now then, what do we know concerning the prophet Micah? I feel like we need to say a little something about this prophet. Well, we're, to we're told in the very first verse of his prophecy that he was from Moresheth, that is, in the lowlands of Judah, not far from the Philistine city of Gath. And he was on the scene during the reigns of Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah all kings of Judah. But he ministered not only to the southern kingdom, but to the northern kingdom of Israel as well. Because he names each of their capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. Moreover, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, as well as the prophets Hosea, Amos, and Joel, all contemporaries of one another. And there's something of a pun in Micah's name. In the last chapter of his prophecy, his name means, Who is like Yahweh? And then in verse 18 of the last chapter, he writes this. It's something of a pun on his name. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in kessid, in loving kindness, in steadfast love. So Micah began to prophesy sometime after the middle of the 8th century B.C. And he emerged on the scene at a time of great prophetic activity. There is, in fact, practically speaking, a word equivalent between the prophecies of Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It's almost word for word equivalent between those prophecies with a few minor verbal discrepancies. And since they were contemporaries, no one is really sure, I think, as the which came first. Did Isaiah borrow from Micah, or did Micah borrow from Isaiah, or did Micah and Isaiah both borrow from a third source, perhaps a well-known hymn of which we know nothing about? Well, the end of that is I don't think it's necessary for us to know. The Lord inspired them both. But clearly, by that passage being here in Micah and the game in Isaiah, God is surely telling us something, is he not? The Holy Spirit doesn't inspire Scripture haphazardly. He doesn't say, oh, I forgot, I gave those words to Isaiah, oh dear. No, these words are found in both places for a purpose. And it's surely to impress upon God's people of that day their downward decline in their wickedness and their rebellion, and that the last word will not be found with their rebellion and sin against God, but that with God's cosmic purpose, as the New Testament brings it to its fullest flower, 
God's purpose is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But like Isaiah, Micah in his day had the battle against spiritual wickedness, political corruption in the land, the abuse of the rich toward the poor. As God's prophet, he cried out time and time again against these injustices. And through the prediction, though the prediction of the destruction of the temple does not occur explicitly in Micah's prophecy, nonetheless, over a century later, Jeremiah tells us in his prophecy, and this is in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, that it was none other than Micah of Moresheth who foretold of the downfall of it in the days of Hezekiah. He was called of God to make the kingdoms of Israel and Judah face up to their sin. And he faithfully warned them that there, if they refused to repent, there was nothing to be had for them but judgment. Oftentimes people want ministers to offer a soft message, but sometimes there is no soft message. We ourselves live in a day of such political corruption, and surely in a day of social upheaval and unrest, and that same message of judgment needs to be declared in our own generation. Now by prophesying to both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Micah views the two of them as being in a symbiotic relationship one to another. As goes one, so goes the other. What happens to the one is significant to the other. And Micah sees these two once undivided kingdoms in the decline of covenant unfaithfulness to God. Both kingdoms are in the process of deformation, and he warns them of God's certain impending judgment. And thus the Messianic prophecy of Micah 5 concerning the birthplace of the Messiah must have been like a ray of light shining in the midst of that dark land. And Micah was assuring them that despite the forces threatening them, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians after them, the Chaldeans, despite the impending captivity awaiting them because of their rebellion and sin. God's redemptive purposes would not be frustrated by the sins of his people. The promised and prophesied seed would come. He would emerge. He would be born. And now Micah declares to them where he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah being the vicinity, that region in which Bethlehem lay, that area near to which Jacob buried his beloved Rachel, as we read about in Genesis 35. The town of Bethlehem to which Naomi returned, you'll remember, from the land of Moab in the book of Ruth. Bethlehem, the place where great David was born, is now named by Micah as the place in which great David's greater son 
was to be born. So having looked at the prophet, prophet Micah, let's now pause for just a few moments to consider this place, Bethlehem. Of all places, why is it Bethlehem? Well, it's significant, first of all, because it is insignificant. That's mentioned clearly, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, it was not the most conspicuous locale. Hardly deserved the title of clans or of thousands. It did not have the prominence and the significance of the other clans of Judah. The reference to clans is used here, I think, poetically to focus on the smallness of the city. So small that it does not so much as rank honorable mention in the list of the 46 cities in the tribe of Judah that we find in the 15th chapter of the book of Joshua. Nonetheless, its Davidic associations are indisputable. This was King David's hometown. David's hometown and the tribe of Judah had messianic links going all the way back to that ancient prophecy of Jacob in Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12 of the universal ruler who would rise up from the tribe of Judah. And God had promised from David's loins, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to raise up a king whose throne would be established forever. Now we know, according to the genealogies, that Christ, Christ was the only physical descendant of David who shared his birthplace as well as being the rightful heir to the throne. As one author has put it, only David and his ideal son share an unroyal birth in an unroyal city. Thus, Christ had to be born in Bethlehem according to the word of the prophet. So Bethlehem links forever the birthplace of King David and the Messiah. But it also underscores something else, significance, besides the names that were born there. In that it underscores the importance of of the continuity of what has come to be called the Davidic covenant. What we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and following, there was a covenant made with David. And we read of these covenants of promise in Ephesians 2 and verse 12. Those covenants of promise were covenants into which God entered with his people in the Old Testament scriptures. Now these covenants of promise did not differ from one another in terms of their substance or their nature. For their great design was to set forth what we refer to today as the covenant of grace, which God was revealing progressively and gradually throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Each of these covenants was based upon the grace of God in which God revealed a Savior and a common salvation. And the later co covenants never contradicted 
the former ones which came before them, and they all find their fulfillment in Christ in what we know as the covenant of grace. So what were these covenants of promise in the Old Testament? Permit, permit me very briefly and quickly to give you a little sketch. We've already referenced the covenant made with Adam. That was not the covenant of grace. It's covenant of works. He was the federal head of all humanity. And Adam broke covenant with God on behalf of all humanity, plunging himself as well as his posterity into this state of sin and rebellion against God. But then God steps in with that great announcement in the Garden of Eden, immediately following on the hills of Adam's transgression. And that was God's introduction to us of what we know as today as the covenant of grace. That Satan's ultimate defeat was assured. For it promised that the seed of the woman, Christ, would prevail over the seed of the serpent. Now the next covenant of which we read is the one made with Noah in Genesis 6. Where we see the first use of those forms, grace and favor and covenant. Where God in his grace enters into covenant with Noah. Moving forward from there we come to that which we're told, who, that person whom we're told is the father of all believers to the Abrahamic covenant that we find disclosed to us in Genesis chapters 12, chapter 15 and 17. And we read in Genesis 15 and verse 18 that on that day the Lord made or literally karat, cut a covenant with Abram. Now prior to God's dealings with him, Abram was a nobody. He was a sinner and an idolater like his father Terah. But God called Abram out of idolatry and made a binding covenant with him. And God's choice of Abraham likewise was based on grace and on grace alone. And then we have the covenant with Moses, the fourth covenant mentioned. This is found in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. And there we read about the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made literally cut with Moses. And then we come to this covenant with David, which is the culmination of all of the previous covenants thus far. And these five covenants in the Old Testament are all various administrations of the one covenant of grace. I encourage you to read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 and paragraph 5. And although the word covenant is not explicitly mentioned in 2 Samuel when it is proclaimed by God, nonetheless, the terms of a covenant are clearly set forth there. However, as David later on reviewed God's dealings with him in grace on that occasion, he does describe it explicitly as a covenant in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5, where David speaking says, Although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made an everlasting covenant with me. 
ordered in all things and secure. And this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it to increase? You think that God's covenant is made sure, predicated on everything being perfect in your family and in my family. If that were true, no covenant would ever be certain. You see, David knew very well that all was not well within his family. Nonetheless, he could rejoice that God had made with him an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For God promised in 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 through 16, that there was to be no expiration date on that covenant. But my kessid, God says, my steadfast love, my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is to be a perpetual covenant that he is making with David. And God is declaring it to be forever. That is a stunning word to a mortal man. And God makes it to David. That your throne, your dynasty is going to be forever. But David saw in this covenant a clear reference to his greater son. And we know his greater son to be the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, for only he could reign forever. I encourage you in your leisure time, study Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 through 36. Now the prominent feature of the Davidic covenant was its revelation of the office of Christ as king, that he would reign forever. David's reign would soon be coming to an end, but his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born from his lineage in Bethlehem, would reign forever and ever. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 5, Of all my sons, David is speaking, for the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now the significance of that verse is that he sat on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. The throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. He wasn't sitting on David's throne. This wasn't a normal succession of kings. But it had a spiritual dimension to it far, far beyond human history. It was the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. For Christ was to be the ultimate heir to that throne. So we've considered the pro who the prophet Micah was. Moreover, we've seen the continuity of the place of the Messiah's birth being linked to David and the Davidic covenant in that place, which came to be called the city of David, Bethlehem. And even though Judah would in days to come go into captivity for her sin, God's promise to David 
would remain steadfast. Now, last of all, as Micah foretold, the promised Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And it's described here in Micah 5.2 as being too little to be among the clans of Judah. Of all the villages, the towns, the cities of Judah, Bethlehem was only a scattering of houses. It was only a hamlet at best, indistinct, not at all the place where one would expect the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And quite to the contrary, one would have expected, as did the wise men, the Magi, when they came from the east to visit, that such a king would have been born in the royal palaces of Jerusalem with all the pomp and splendor and luxury that could be provided there. But instead of the ostentatious surroundings of a palace, not even a place to be found in the local inn, we're told that there were no better accommodations for our Lord than to be laid in a manger, a common feeding trough for livestock. Ancient church writers, Justin Martyr and Origen, identified that place to be a cave. Today, to be sure, there is a site in connection with what is called the Church of the Nativity, bearing the inscription, Here Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Who knows for sure? But in our time remaining, I want to pause to draw your mind, your attention, just briefly. And I hope you'll see why from the biblical scene of Bethlehem to consider for just a few moments something of the mystery of God's providence. And how he directs not only the actions of men, but the very thoughts of men as well. We read, for example, in Proverbs 21 and verse 1, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Have you ever considered that even the thoughts of men are governed by the providential care of God? When you and I speak of the providence of God, we don't usually think of the thoughts of men, do we? But just think how influential the thoughts of men are. Think for a moment how influential the thought was that you had once upon a time. I think I'll go to that church. I think I'll listen the next time that my friend encourages me to attend church with him or her. I think I'll go with him. I think I'll listen. You know, they tell me that their minister stands in the pulpit and he opens the word of God and he explains it so well. I think I'll go. I think I'll listen. I think I'll listen to that man on the radio. I think I'll Read that tract that that funny old man on the street gave me the other day. You know, I think I'll take the Bible down off the shelf. Haven't read it in a long time. Blow the dust off. I think, I think I'll pray. 
I think, I think, and your whole life is changed, and you are, your eternal destiny is changed because of a thought in one sense. And all because of effectual grace that works in our minds and our hearts and operates there oftentimes in secret in the innermost recesses of our beings. And it turns us in a new way and it moves us into an altogether different direction, such a thought. And you see that the wills of men and the thoughts of men and the desires of men and every purpose of man is under God's control and is woven into the tapestry of God's providence in our lives. Now, there's a beautiful story in the Bible. In fact, it's one we've been thinking about tonight that just proves that undeniably in connection with the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And it's the story of Jesus that we've been considering this evening, how he is born uh, in Bethlehem according to the prophet Micah. And we all know that he was. But you see, his mother is great with child. And she's living up in Nazareth, some 90 miles away or so to the north with her husband, Joseph. Now, to be sure, no woman, at least no thoughtful woman, in the last month of her pregnancy is going to choose to make a long journey on foot some 90 miles away. But Caesar Augustus has a thought. He has a thought. I think, I think I'll take a census of the Roman Empire for the purpose of taxes. And everyone must return to the city of their nativity in order to accomplish this. And of course, if there had been any opposition to his authority, there would have been an outcry throughout the various lands and if there had been any newspapers in that day, surely editors would have written editorials against it. If there had been any rival political parties, surely they would have exploited it and probably voted against it. Take a census, well and fine, but take it where we are. But Caesar Augustus, in this day, is an absolute monarch. Indeed, a tyrant. Moreover, what he says goes. And so Joseph and Mary at the behest of a pagan, heathen ruler are forced to make a journey by foot to Bethlehem. And Micah 5, 2 is fulfilled to the very letter of the text. Because God keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises even through the whim and the will and the decree of a pagan, heathen tyrant. Why? Because God says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And that he turns it wherever he wishes. Now you may be thinking, well, you know, David, that's a... That's a beautiful story, but how does any of that apply to me? 
Well, my friend, the heart of your boss and the heart of that difficult person beside whom you work with day in and day out, their hearts are in the hand of the Lord too. And he can turn their hearts wherever he wishes. You see, there is a minuteness to God's providence that extends, yes, even to the thoughts of unbelieving men and women and the fulfillment of Micah 5.2 regarding Bethlehem as the place of our Lord's birth. That's one of God's many testimonies to that very reality. You see, a place can stand for more than simply its locale. The God of Bethlehem is the God who always knows, always knows, the next step that needs to be taken in the accomplishment of his purposes. His will cannot be frustrated. And his kingdom keeps right on coming regardless. And that is what makes Bethlehem a place of hope. The kingdom of God draws near in the person of the king. But then this little last word, and I'm done. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, in spite of its insignificance, being obscure and off the beaten path, as it were, was nonetheless chosen by God to be the birthplace for the hope of the world. We wouldn't think of Bethlehem as being the place where our Lord's sufferings begins but in the predestinating purpose and providence of God's grace, Bethlehem became the birthplace for the hope of the human race. Yes, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, how so? Luke 2 and verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, that little backwater stop in the road you know as Bethlehem. There is born to you this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.